following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. And if you'll join me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This morning we will be looking at verses 15 through 17. I just want to mention, I know you've noticed, but we have a new projector and it looks great. You can actually see what's on the screen now. We also have new cameras, new items on our soundboard. We got new microphones, so everything is clicking. But I wanted to mention all this just to give a public thanks to our deacons for their <coughs> hard work and researching everything and getting it all together. And especially uh, Charles Hughes put in a lot of effort to make sure it happened. A lot of things going on behind the scenes that you're not always aware of, but these guys have done a lot to make sure we have the best possible experience as we gather for worship. And if you watch the videos online, hopefully now the quality will be top-notch. So you don't have to squint anymore, but thanks to our, our deacons. <clears throat> All right, Romans 5 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. Now when we contemplate the world... And everything that we see in the world, we understand that everything exists in this constant play between trying to balance order and chaos. All of us already know this, yet we probably don't recognize that we know this. It's just a part of life, but we immediately comprehend it when it's articulated. Everyone understands order and chaos, and we all have a palpable sense of the chaos that is lurking underneath everything that exists in this familiar world. Philosophers and theologians of every religious category have sought to understand this relationship between order and chaos since the beginning of time. One modern philosopher describes order as the structures of predictability. Order is a peacetime army. It's the political structure, the corporate environment, the system. It's the they in you know what they say. It's credit cards and classrooms and supermarket checkout lines and turn taking and, and traffic lights and the familiar routes of daily commuters as they go to and from work. Order is tribe and religion and home and country. It's a warm, secure living room. If you live up north where the fireplace gl glows and the, the children play, it's the flag of the nation, it's the currency that we're used to. Order is the floor beneath your feet as you plan your day. It's the great traditions of life. It's the rows of desks in a school classroom or the trains that leave on time, the calendar and the clock that is always predictable. It's the, it's the, the order <clears throat> that we depend on in order to plan our lives. Order is the public facade we're called upon to wear, the politeness of a gathering of civilized strangers and the thin ice on which we skate when we know instinctively, culturally, that we're not supposed to talk about things like religion and politics in civil society. Order is the place where the behavior of the world matches our expectations and our desires, the place where all the things turn out the way that we want them to. Now, chaos, on the other hand, is the unknown. Chaos is the impenetrable darkness of a cave 
or the, the accident on the side of the road or the arms of the train coming down when you're trying to make it to evening worship service at church. <laughs> it's the mother grizzly with all the compassion for her cubs seeing you as a threat. Chaos is the domain of ignorance. It's what extends beyond the boundaries of the state and ideas and disciplines. It's foreigners in our, in our challenging midst trying to have conversations with different languages. It's the member of another group. It's the, the rustle in the bushes at night. It's the monster under the bed. All of this is chaos. It's despair. And how we feel when we've been profoundly betrayed. It's the place we end up when things in our lives fall apart. When we, when we ha- see our dreams die, when our careers collapse, when our relationships end, or when the doctor says you only have one more month. It's the underworld of the fairy tales and myths where the dragons and the gold he guards exist forever together. Chaos is where you are when you don't know where you are and what we're doing when we don't know what we are doing. So in short, all of those things and situations we neither know or understand. This is the world of chaos, and if we're all honest, this is where we live. When the ice you're skating on is solid, that's order. But when the bottom drops out and things fall apart and you plunge through the ice, that's chaos. Chaos is, is the, the deep ocean bottom to which, remember, Pinocchio voyaged to, to rescue his father from Monstro, the whale, and the fire-breathing dragon. It's a, it's a great story of history entering into the chaos, the journey into darkness, and the rescue that must be done if he wants to be real, if he wants to extract himself from the temptations of deceit and all of the victimization and impulsive pleasures of slavery in which he existed. Order is the place and time where the complex and ideas that you organize and experience, your actions should happen and do happen. Chaos is the new place and time that emerges when you face tragedy unexpectedly or when hatred reveals its face to you. Even in the confines of your own home, perhaps, something unexpected or something undesired might happen. And when the plan's being laid out, regardless of how familiar the circumstances, when it doesn't go that way, we find ourselves in a state of chaos. Now, the interlocking horns of order and chaos in our own lives is the the tension between what we know things should be and the world that we long for and what we once had on the one hand and how things actually are and how we want them to change, and how they're, they're never meant to be on the other. <clears throat> Think about all of our dreams for order and how we seek to achieve them. What is, the, what is the rhetoric we hear every time there is a national election? This is the most important election of our lifetimes. Why? Because we think things are chaotic and we're longing for order and we're longing for a vision of order. And where, whether we realize it or not, the driver of our actions, the voice of our conscience, the aching in our hearts is a longing for the Garden of Eden 
where there was order. But we all know profoundly that in this life, we live outside the garden. We live in chaos where there's suffering and evil and pain and disaster. And so mankind has spent history trying to establish order and to find the reasons for chaos and asking how and why and what can we do to fix it. But the Bible has always been abundantly clear and concise on this issue. There's a very famous Nigerian writer named Chino Achibe. He wrote a book called Things Fall Apart. And he wrote that the world has put a knife on the things that held us together and we have fallen apart. Indeed, everything has truly fallen apart, hasn't it? But really, if you're going to do an honest assessment of life, of your own life and the world that we inhabit as people, we quickly discover that things are not as bad as we think they are. In fact, they're actually far worse. We, humanity, have suppressed the truth. We've made ourselves our own gods. We've denied our creator. We've besmirched his name. We've transgressed his law. We have gone our own way and we've made chaos our king. And, and throughout the book of Romans, especially in the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul applies meticulous reason as to why things are the way they are. So this morning, as we look at chapter 5 and verses 15 through 17, in the context of this chapter, the, the, uh, the focus is an analogy of contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, between Adam the first, as John Bunyan wrote in the Pilgrim's Progress, and Adam the second, who is Jesus Christ himself. Now in verses 12 through 14, Paul draws out the reality of the fall and the fact that death reigns in a chaotic world because the sin of Adam is the sin of us all. Adam, as our federal head, sinned, and as a result of Adam's sin, all of us are born sinners, and death is the result of that sin. No one is exempt. No one comes into this world as anything other than an heir of the sin of Adam. Our nature is Adam's nature. Chaos is our inheritance. Order is the longing of our hearts that apart from Christ we never realize. But when we get to verse 15, Paul turns the corner and shows us the other side of the equation. He shows us what God has done to restore our chaotic world and our chaotic lives. So as we read, we need to read the full context to understand. Paul deals with the bad news. I decided this morning we're going to look at the good news. So we're going to start in verse 12 and read through 21 just for the context but our main focus is verses 15 through 17. So let's begin in verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, up to this point in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's been building a foundation of justification by faith alone. Over several chapters, he lays out exactly what justification by faith is, and he highlights that this has always been God's way of salvation since Genesis 3 when the chaos began. We have that great promise in Genesis 3.15 of the gospel, the great reversal of all things. And then he draws out the implications of justification by faith, and he answers those who would seek to deny this most important Christian doctrine. The big question of chapter 5 then is, now that we know what justification by faith is, how does it serve to give us greater assurance And why is it that we can rest fully and completely upon this profound truth? Well, all of Scripture shows us, and especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, that our justification, our right standing before God, our being declared righteous in the eyes of God has nothing to do whatsoever with us and what we have done. You see, in the broader context of this passage, Paul's primary emphasis is the comparison here that he's drawing out between Adam and Christ. And that is that just as sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin, notice Paul says, much more the grace of God has come to you because of this one man, Jesus Christ. In other words, you coming into the world as a sinner was not up to you because your father Adam sinned and we inherited that nature. That sin nature is ours from our federal head who is Adam. And so two, for all those who are in Christ, our justification is is not something that we earn, that we work for, or that we even beg and plead for enough so that we will eventually receive it. It's something that God does by the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And really, if you look at this through the lens of comparing Adam as our federal head in whom we are all sinners, and Christ, our federal head as Christians in whom we have justification, it really is the death knell to any notion that faith is in any way something that we exercise of our own free will. 
Remember, Paul's emphasis here is not on individual sins and the fact that we have individual sins, as true as that is, but rather the larger truth that we are all sinful people from the womb because we all sin in Adam. We have nothing to do with our nature other than we were conceived. And so too, when we experience the new birth in Jesus Christ, when we are made to be new creations in Christ, it's not because we said anything or did anything, but because God in his great love for us mercifully sent his son to live for us, to die for us. And on that basis alone, he adopts us into his family and makes us his children counted righteous in his sight. And so as we look at verses 15 through 17, we see a particular emphasis that Paul is placing on what we have received in our justification. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are primarily focused on sin and death that came into the world through Adam. And so 15, 16, and 17 focus on the free gift that has come to us in Jesus Christ. And it's important that we see this emphasis. Five different times in three verses, you see Paul mentioning the free gift. Now, as you, just a little note, as you read your Bible, if you see a word emphasized over and over again in a certain passage, you better believe that's really important. And so here, Paul mentions the free gift, that this is a profound reality that we should never grow tired of hearing. We should never grow tired of contemplating. Brothers and sisters, I hope all of us can get it in our hearts this morning and contemplate this great, important reality. Our God did all of this for us. What we see here in the text is all a work of God, and he did it for us as his children. He didn't have to. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our one triune God was perfectly content in and of himself without us. God didn't make us because he needed friends. He didn't need us so he could have companionship and a relationship with fallen people who are always going to rebel against him. He did all of this for us. Don't let that thought escape you ever. Christ did this for us even though we know the truth about who we really are. It's a powerful reality. It should give us great hope and assurance in our continued pilgrimage as God's people. Now taken as a whole, verses 15 through 17 show us that Christ is not like Adam. Remember, I mentioned already, this is an analogy of contrast. Verse 14 ended with Paul saying that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And this is not to say that Christ is like Adam other than him being a man, but rather that Christ undoes all of the chaos that Adam created. He is far greater. He is far more significant. He is infinitely more valuable. And so the first thing that Paul shows us in these verses is just that. In verse 15, he shows us that the free gift is far more significant for you than the trespasses of Adam. Read verse 15 again. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so here it is that Paul introduces the free gift. 
This is simply the gift of grace. It is the gift of Christ himself and all that flows from him. Our justification, our salvation, it is a gracious gift that is not like the trespass of Adam that he committed that introduced the entire world to sin and death. You see the very clear contrast and emphasis here that we are a fallen race because sin was introduced in one act of disobedience, just one act of rebellion. But it was such a revolutionary act because it was in rebellion against Adam's creator, his maker, his God, his king, his Lord. It was an act that made the whole race become rebellious in principle, me-centered at its core with a fallen nature. And all of life's experience that we live in that fallen nature is us trying to make ourselves to be like God. This is chaos to the core. This is the chaos of life. That one act that Adam and Eve committed controls so much of what follows from there. But, and here's Paul's emphasis in verse 15, the grace of God is far greater. Paul uses this phrase a lot when he writes. He always writes, much more. Much more. He's saying that when Christ died on the cross, he didn't just pay for that one act of Adam. Since that one act, you and I have sinned again and again and again. And not just you and I, but men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation throughout all of human history. So you see, it's not only a, a contrast of, of direction. By the one act, you get the de-godding of God and all of the violence and sin that flows from that. But the one act that restores men and women to God does not deal with just one act, but with all of our rebellion and with all of our sin. So on the one hand, we have judgment and condemnation because of one act. It only takes one sin. But much more, on the other hand, we have justification that deals with all of our sin. Now, notice also the words in the second part of the verse. The one and the many. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Many are in Adam and die because of one man's transgression. Many are in Christ, and many experience grace because of one man's grace. Paul mentions simply this. Judgment came because of one man. Salvation become, comes because of one man. There was one way for all men to fall in Adam. There was one way for all to be saved in Christ. It's the singularity of Christ and his grace and his righteousness that Paul wants us to see and to delight in and to be amazed by that we might love him and cherish him and worship him all the more. You see, when Christ came into the world, he had to undo all that had previously been done. Mankind is being reconstituted in the new Adam. 
a new humanity is, is coming forward, a saved humanity has sprung up. And if this new man is to undo what the old man did, he has to do something completely different. He has to live different. He has to, he has to be different to die different. Christ had to come into this world unstained. He had to live a life of perfect obedience. It took a perfect life to undo the disaster that entered through Adam. It took Christ fulfilling his covenantal obligations and saying, take the disaster of the world, take the disaster of sin, take the disaster of Adam, and let that disaster fall on me. So you see, the contrast that Paul is showing us is not just a contrast of what each man did, but it is the contrast of the results of what each man did. It is the dramatic contrast between order and chaos. What happened as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit? They ran and they hid. What happened when Christ was presented to be crucified on our behalf? He made himself available. He didn't hide. He didn't run. He didn't say a word. He took it all for us. It is a dramatic contrast. The chaos of this world ensures that there is no way that anyone could ever find their way back to the garden on their own, let alone that anyone would ever live an obedient life or die a sufficient death to relieve themselves of the guilt or to assuage the wrath of God. The damage that was done by Adam was irreparable by common man because common man stands condemned with Adam. The only hope for you, the only hope for me is the free gift of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's really important that we think of the full picture, the entire scope of what Christ has accomplished. If all Jesus did was die for your sins and said, okay, from here, you start fresh. It's a clean slate, so go and sin no more. If that was it, at the moment of our justification, we just start back at zero and he says go and we're released from under the headship of Adam, but we have to continue on our own. The best we would get is that we would go back to the Garden of Eden, as it were, and we would have a chance to try all over again. But how would that end? In no time at all, we would be right back to where we are in the midst of the chaos. It reminds me of those video games you can play. Now you can get on a video game and play with anyone in the world at any time. Back when I was a kid, we had a handful of games that you had to blow on before you put it in the thing. And when your life ended, it was over. The game was over. There was no replays. You had to start back at the beginning. And you weren't playing with other people, you were playing against the computer. And so over time, you could predict it and figure out what it was and move further and further along. Well, now at 40 years old, it's exceedingly rare that I find a chance to sit down and play a game. But say I do, hey, it might be fun to sit down and play a game tonight. Let me turn this on and see how it goes. And with all the anticipation, after a long day of work, getting my kids in bed, I want to sit down, have some fun, blow off some steam. The second the game starts, some 12-year-old kid that's been on a 16-hour game bender gets in there, and within the first second, my character is gone, and I have to wait to start all over again. 
right? That's so frustrating, but that's us. If the Lord Jesus said, okay, I've dealt with your sins of the past, but now it's up to you moving forward, so I'm going to put you back into the game, what's going to happen? You're going to die immediately. Why would anybody want that? That's not fun. That's just going back into the chaos over and over and over again. And so in the same way, if Jesus said you're free to go back into the garden, same rules apply, don't eat of the tree, what would we do? Immediately, we would all, every one of us, you might think you're better, you're not, we would all walk right up to the tree. We would ignore the vast garden of God's grace and we'd eat the fruit and we'd be right back in the chaos. So you see, it couldn't be that Jesus just died for our sins, as significant and as important as that is. But along with his death, he had to give us the free gift of his grace. He had to give us the free gift of his life and righteousness as well. Jesus not only died for the guilt of our sins, but he lived a life of perfect obedience in our place so that we can be clothed in his righteousness divine. And that righteousness is not only a perfect righteousness, it is a final, irrevocable righteousness. So now the enemy will continue to take shots at us. He will continue to try to take us down. But when we trip and when we stumble and when we sometimes fall, we don't get sent back to Eden. No. We continue to be brought forward by the grace of God to righteousness and everlasting life. We continue on the journey to the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because the free gift of God is not equal to sin. It is much more. It is far greater. It is significantly more. You know, we often look at the garden and say, how wonderful that would have been. But brothers and sisters, what God has prepared for us is far greater. We can think of this in terms of an inheritance, In the death of Adam, what did we inherit? We inherited a negative balance. He left us with all of his debt, all of his bills, all of his mess to clean up. No life insurance, no savings, no investments, no assets whatsoever. Just a pile of debt that is still owed and has to be paid and we don't have what it takes to pay it. That's what Adam left us with. That's our inheritance. But in Christ, we inherit far more than we could ever have the time to sit down and count. For all eternity, we will be counting the trillions upon trillions that were given to us as a free gift in our inheritance in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just leave us with an antique lamp or a precious moments collection or a few beanie babies. No, he leaves us all the eternal riches of heaven. He leaves us all that we need and much more than we need that we might find our way out of the chaos and find true order and peace and true joy and true satisfaction in his righteousness alone. Adam squandered our fortune and bankrupted the entire human race. But far greater is the gift that is free and that is ours in Jesus Christ. We're no longer bankrupt but we are the wealthiest of all wealthy people all the world over. The free gift of Christ is far more significant than the trespass of Adam. Now look at the second thing Paul shows us in verse 16. That when you have the free gift, God can now justify you in spite of many transgressions. 
Read verse 16 again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now here Paul is reemphasizing what he stated in verse 15. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. He's simply rephrasing that the free gift is not like the trespass. But then he brings the argument further. What is the comparison he's bringing out here? It is between that of judgment that leads to condemnation and the free gift that leads to justification. Now, let's remember something about justification. It's not merely a new relationship with God, nor is it a new status because, uh, or not a new status before God like we've leveled up in the world or we, we just have a new, a new place and he simply thinks more highly of us than he did before. No, justification is a new legal standing upon Christ's righteousness and on this basis of Christ's obedience. So the free gift is not itself justification, but it's the foundation upon which justification will be built. Do you see that? Our justification is, is granted as a result of our having been given the free gift, which is Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience, and the grace of God that accompanies it. So one of the wonderful, beautiful things that Paul does here is give us a framework within which we can place what we see playing out in all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read the gospels and you read about all that Christ did in the gospels, you now have a better understanding of how to place that in the grand narrative of redemption. Why did Jesus do and say what he did and said? Everything you read, you can now go and be reminded, Christ is doing this not only to give me an example to follow, but he's laying the foundation for my acceptance before God, by grace, through faith alone. He didn't do anything haphazardly. He didn't do anything unintentionally. He didn't do anything unmeticulously. He did everything with purpose and direction and intention. And that purpose, that direction, that intention was the foundation that could be built so that your justification could stand and never be taken down. The foundation that was built, the free gift that was given is so strong that no wind of sin can knock it down. No tornado of transgressions can move it. No tsunami of failure could ever make it shake. Your justification is indestructible because the foundation is the free gift which is Christ's perfect righteousness. So we have all we need to respond to the evil one in the midst of the chaos. The evil one loves to come to us and say, you can't make it. Look at yourself. Stare yourself in the mirror. You can't be serious right now. Look at who you are. You're an epic failure. You're a mess. Look at, look at you're a liar. You're a cheater. You're a thief. You're a murderer in your heart. Look at what you've done. 
You've left messes everywhere. You've turned with everyone that you've known. Look at what you're doing now. Even as you, as you stare at yourself in the mirror, you know your life is a train wreck. What are you even doing? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your energy and your emotional capacity on anything having to do with Christ? You are a failure. That's what the evil one loves to tell us. But you know what we can say? We don't have to argue. We don't have to say, no, don't say that. Don't, don't talk to me like that. I'm not that bad. You know, the, the finite wisdom of the world is constantly telling us that we just need to tell ourselves that we're good enough and we're strong enough and gosh darn and people should like me. And if they don't, it's their loss and we just need to move on with our lives. We don't need to think like that, do we? We can be honest. We don't have to argue with evil. We don't have to pretend like we're something other than what we are. We don't have to put on the flesh, uh, on, on a, a new flesh or, or a different coat of paint and go out into the world to show off our veneer, knowing what's actually underneath it all. No, we can look the devil in the eyeballs and say, the truth is, I know myself well enough to know that I'm worse than you're saying I am. I'm not proud of that. I don't like that. I wish that wasn't the case, but the fact remains, and it's where I stand in Jesus' grace that is far greater and more powerful than my sin will ever be. My sin nature and my sins are great, but Jesus' righteousness is not my own, and the foundation of my justification is his righteousness and not my own, and it will not move, it will not be taken away. So you see what Paul is doing here? He's given this, this powerful weapon to us against the accusations of the world and the flesh and the devil. He's giving us the sure footing that we need to continue to bathe ourselves in the good news of the gospel. What makes God's grace shine in this verse is that it triumphs over everything. How? By providing a substitute righteousness. Because Christ was righteous for us, God can now justify us in spite of our many transgressions. Paul is strengthening our faith here, isn't he? He wants you to think something here, and really Paul wants you to feel something here. Think of the truth about the greatness and the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness that Christ provides for all who trust in him. And then you can, you can feel the sweetness of God himself reminding us that the vast quantity of transgressions in our lives are no obstacle for him to justify us. Why? Because he's given us the free gift that restores order in the midst of chaos. And so where can we go from there? Well, Paul points us in our final point in verse 17 that when you have the free gift, you will reign in life and in the presence of God. Look again at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul just keeps going. He just keeps piling on the good news. 
I want to encourage you to read all of chapter 5, maybe this afternoon. And when you do, you'll see that Paul is just building and building and building his argument. And he, he really is, he is piling on the description of blessing. And if you keep reading and you get into chapter 6, 7, and 8, you'll see it continues to build. And it gets all the way to chapter 11, where Paul is so overwhelmed by all this great news, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments, how inscrutable are your ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been your counselor, who's given a gift to you that you might be repaid for from you and through you and to you are all things, glory be to you forever and ever, amen. And that is the cry of the heart who understands how good this news really is. And Paul just continues to build. And he starts right here in chapter 5. And and Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans 5, it's simply entitled, Assurance. And hopefully you can see why. Paul doesn't want to leave this chapter with us lacking in assurance. You know, some, some Christians tend to think that we should always lack a little bit of assurance. And if if we don't have sermons that are always calling us to question our salvation, then we really haven't heard good gospel preaching. But that's not at all what we see in the Bible, is it? There are certainly times when we need to be challenged, when we need to examine ourselves. That's an important part of the Christian life. But what we don't want is for genuine Christians to never have any assurance of their salvation whatsoever, always living in fear and uncertainty, especially every time they sin. So what is Paul saying here? Notice in the first place, after Paul's much more in this verse, he writes, will those who receive the abundance of grace. Now this is a very specific and a very narrow focus. The those who he is writing about is a specific group of people who are being contrasted with the many that we saw in verse 15 who died because of Adam's sin. The many who did not receive the gift of Christ's righteousness and died in their sin. So the many who die in sin are those who experience the world of chaos in a way that those who die in Christ do not. You see, all humanity is born in Adam, but not all humanity is alive in Christ. Paul's main point is that what we have received, notice now, it's not just grace. What does he say? It is an abundance of grace. It's an abundance of grace. And and there it is again, the free gift of righteousness. This is Paul's refrain all the time. Remember he says, we have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And this is the gift of God. And, And so what do we receive as a result We reign in life through this one man, Jesus Christ. You see, it just keeps getting better. Goodness, he could have said, Christ died and you are forgiven and you have everlasting life. And all of us, that is enough for all of us to say, praise God and amen. But now, he pours grace upon grace upon grace on you every single day of your life. He gives you breath in your lungs and new mercies every morning. And not only that, much more, Paul would say, you reign in life with Jesus Christ. 
and implied there is not only in life here, but forever. Here and in the glorified presence of God. In other words, I I like how John Piper says this. He says, we receive his grace and it makes us kings and queens in the age to come. Brothers and sisters, it sounds too good to be true. It does. This changes everything. And so now in part, Paul is saying that death no longer reigns over the believer. And in the here and now, we reign in life in Jesus Christ in this present world. It's the same thing we see in Ephesians chapter two. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You ever think about that part of that text? That's what happens to every believer in Christ. It, it, in, in part, we're reigning here and now as God's people. In, in other words, as Christians, we're delivered from the fear of ultimate death. We are no longer under the bondage of death. We had victory over death in Christ. And so when we meet with death, we have nothing to fear as God's people. This is our present reigning with Christ. But not only that, Paul shows us in in Romans that sin no longer reigns over us either. Where before, in Adam, that's your default. You can't help it. You have no option but to sin. It was the only way we knew how to function. But in Christ, sin does not reign over us. We are no longer obligated to sin as we once were. Now, we will still sin. We do still sin. We won't escape from sin in this life in the midst of the chaos, but we're not obligated to do it like we once were. We have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells us that sin should not have dominion over us, for we're not under the law, but under grace. And so further, we can say that we also have victory over the evil one, over Satan and his horde of minions. This is what it means to reign in life. And the problem for many Christians is we, we forget that or we don't think about that. And so we just sort of live defeated lives. But we're already victorious in Christ. And so this is what it means to reign in life. We're no longer under the chaos and the tyranny of life in a fallen world with no hope of salvation. And yet, Paul comes in again like a great infomercial and says, but wait, there's more. There are even more glorious things that await the believer in Jesus Christ. What we experience in God's grace here and now is is but a small, a very small foretaste of what's to come. You know, really, it's not until Christ returns that we will know what exactly that encompasses. But we have a few hints throughout uh, throughout the New Testament. Paul writes back in Romans 2 that we have an eternal future of glory and honor and immortality and peace. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches us that we will inherit the kingdom that is prepared for us before the foundations of the world. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes that after his life of suffering for the sake of Christ, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews teaches in chapter 2 that the future kingdom will not be ruled by angels, but by the heirs of salvation, by you and I. John writes in Revelation that we are kings and priests unto God, and Christ tells us that he will grant to us to sit with him on the throne. 
The saints of God, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and that's everyone who is in Christ. Every Christian is a saint. The saints of God will judge the world and even the angels. Adam was made the Lord of creation, as it were, but he lost his position. But even more, we will get that back and infinitely more. We will share the throne with the Son of God over all the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, we tend to forget that, don't we? The reality for many of Christians and, and for many of you, some of you are absolutely plagued by your sin. You look at the Christian life and all you think is, I'm a great sinner. And that's true. It's important that we see that. And Paul makes that clear, abundantly clear in Romans 1, 2, and 3. All of the accusations against us are right, and none of them go far enough. All the things you think about yourself and your sin are accurate, and you can't deny that. Your sin is far more than you think of your sin. Even your greatest moments in life are tainted with sin because it includes everything about you. What you do, what you think, how you feel, what you say, and on and on. But... That's not the major emphasis Paul is making. And it's important to recognize that that's not the major emphasis of Scripture on the whole. And I I hope Paul can convince you, I hope the Word of God can convince you by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, illuminating this text and making it real to you in the bigger picture. The greater reality is not that you are a great sinner, but that Jesus' grace is far, far, far greater than your sin. Listen, your sin, whatever it may be today or tomorrow, will never best the grace of God. There's never, there, there's, there's never anything that you're going to, to do or to say where we could say that Christ is not sufficient for those things. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in your heart. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? I hope we all believe that. There will be days when your sin towers over you and you feel like you're drowning. You feel like you can never start again. You feel like you've abandoned all hope of ever having joy in Jesus Christ again. But what is he saying to you? What is God saying to you right here and right now in this text? He's saying, you cannot out my grace. I've got you. You're mine. I've got you. And I'll say the best part again. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ for the believer than there is sin in the believer's heart. Now, friends, perhaps you're hearing all of this and you're realizing that you continue to live under the curse of Adam. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never looked to Christ that you might live, that you might know the blessing of reigning and ruling with Christ forever. But the text is clear. Your father Adam sinned. And so you are a sinner and you have broken the law of God in every way. But there's hope. The second Adam, the God-man, Jesus Christ, has come into the world to set you free. He was born of a virgin, so he didn't have the nature of Adam that we have. He lived a perfect life that only he could live because we're not capable of doing so, fulfilling all of God's law to perfection without one hint of sin. He died a sinner's death in our place, a death that we deserve, taking upon himself a wrath that he did not deserve, the wrath of God that was stored up and reserved for all of his people for all of time. Christ suffered on the cross more in the time that he was there than anyone will ever suffer in hell for all eternity. 
And he did all of that, that he would be buried in the grave and three days later raised again to defeat sin and death forever and ever, that all who receive the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit can place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and finding everlasting life to reign as a king or a queen with Jesus Christ forever and ever. I pray by the work of the Spirit that you would be stirred to consider this great reality today if you do not know Christ. That you would look to Jesus Christ and live. That you would know the blessing of the free gift of God's grace and in receiving that free gift that you would walk faithfully with our Lord Jesus all the days of your life and into eternity forever. Now, brothers and sisters, the beauty of us being kings and queens in the kingdom of heaven is that we will see the full reversal of the fall. At this very moment, if you are a child of God, if you are standing upon the righteousness of Christ, you are a king or a queen that has everything that is necessary to reign in this life over sin and Satan and your own flesh, no matter what may be against you. And if we can have that mindset as God's people, we will have a greater sense of assurance knowing that what Christ has done for us is much more than anything we could ever hope or imagine. In Jesus Christ, all that is chaotic is restored, but not to what it was originally. It is remade into something far greater. And the great blessing for us is that we get to be a part of it. So let that great reality fill your heart with gladness and rejoicing in all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the much more that is ours in Christ. That you have called us as your people to live and to breathe in this world of chaos. That you can use us to display your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your love and your grace. That we can experience the much more that is ours as those you have called to reign with Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would have that ever increasing sense in our minds that with Christ nothing and no one can be against us in any way that will take away from us what is most valuable and most important to anyone in this life and that is that we would have a righteousness to stand upon that is not our own and so I pray O oh God that you would fill our hearts this morning with thankfulness with joy with assurance Lord, no doubt there is someone in this room this morning, maybe several people, who are feeling the crippling weight of their own sin and guilt from this previous week, and maybe even something this morning. Lord, I pray that you help them to work that out in their hearts, and not allow it to cripple them to the place where they would think that you no longer love them, that you no longer care about them, that you are casting them aside. May it never be that that thought would enter the minds and hearts of your people. May we rest upon Christ who is sufficient even in our own inadequacies. And so we pray for a great helping of assurance this morning and that as you give it to us, Lord, that we would delight all the more in the gospel that purchased for us a salvation that cannot be taken away. And we're grateful.
grateful and thank you for all of these things in the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.